Welcome back to another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. This is a podcast for fans of the guests who appear on this show, as well as fans of music in general, and a podcast for singers, songwriters, musicians, recording artists, entertainers who want to learn more to help them grow in what they are doing. I'm Bruce Wozniak from Now Hear This Incorporated, which provides management, publicity, and related services. I hope that you've been receiving the weekly e-newsletter that I send out every Wednesday. There is information in there about the latest podcast episode, plus other goings-on, including exclusives that only the people who are signed up to that list get to see first. If you are not getting that, it's quick and easy to sign up. Just go to the show website, nhte.net, and pop in your email address. Joining me today on the Now Hear This Entertainment Guest Line from New York, my guest spent 10 years as a Forbes senior editor and now covers the business of music at Substack, where he is writing a twice-weekly newsletter and serializing his fifth book, We Are All Musicians Now, both of which I will be giving you information for on gaining access. He has been a source for the BBC, NPR, and 60 Minutes, and a speaker at South by Southwest, the global tech event CES, plus TEDx, Princeton, and Harvard. Steve Forbes said of this guest, quote, There is no keener, more knowledgeable, and scintillating observer of the modern cultural scene, end quote. He was previously a guest on this show two years ago on episode 325. Welcome back to Now Hear This Entertainment, Zach Greenberg. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, you bet. Good to talk to you again, Zach. Thank you. Yeah, same. When you were on the show two years ago, the world was only a month or so into lockdown. And as a result, you talked then about your book tour having taken a big hit. And (laughs) who would have known back then when we were recording that interview that at the start of 2022, we would still be talking about the same virus or at least a variant and a continued form of a pandemic. I would love to get your view of what took place in the music industry over the last two years as it relates to, number one, for major acts, arena and stadium shows finally coming back, although some with restrictions of varying degrees. And then number two, for indie acts, the shift that we saw to all those folks going online and the overcrowding that we saw for watch me on here, tip me over there. Uh, And by the way, on the note of the major acts, I'm thinking of a Maroon 5 show that I went to last September, where the policy was you had to show proof of vaccination on the way in, which they said was coming from the band and not the venue. But please, your thoughts looking back two years, Zach. Yeah, you know, just a a little bit different uh, than it was back then. I remember, you know, back then it was kind of like, oh, I, I can't wait a few few more weeks until this is all over and we can get back to get back to normal. But um, but here we are two years later. So yeah, I mean you know touring has certainly um, come back to some extent in that it's happening at all. But um, you know when you really look at the at the numbers, especially on the high end, you know we're nowhere near where we were um, in 2019. A dozen acts grossed over 100 million on the road. Mm. Not a single one did that in 2020, and only the Rolling Stones did that in 2021. Wow. Um, so you know it, it's uh, I think pretty much you know I think a lot of the big acts are, are holding their powder and um, you know waiting until things you know kind of seem a little bit safer but uh you know who knows when we're going to be out of the woods with this thing entirely Hmm. and for the indie acts yeah you know i think for the for the indie acts it's um a kind of a matter of you know risk versus reward right um you know i i think that uh, a lot of acts you know once the vaccines came around and um, you know, certainly summer and, you know, open air amphitheaters and such, you know, uh, whether or not they wanted to felt that they had to, you know, to get back on the road to, to generate some income. Um, you know, I think that that, you know, as, as probably listeners know, uh, live music has been the main driver of revenue for, you know, recording acts for, you know, many years now. And, um, you know, without that kind of backbone, um, you know, to the, to the business side of things, it's very hard to, to make a living as a band. But, you know, I, I think as you were alluding to, uh, there's been sort of the, the, the patreonification of, uh, <laughs> of music over the pandemic. You know, it's, um, 
uh, a lot of, you know, come on to Patreon, support me here, or, you know, here's my Kickstarter, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, that's definitely been one way that bands have been able to make it through, you know, without being able to tour in the way that they were before. Um, you know, the idea that you could have, you know, through one of these platforms or even through your own fan club, um, you know, some kind of steady recurring income, um, and, and you could kind of like nourish your fans with, you know, songs from the vault or, mm. you know, new videos or live streams or something like that. Um, you know, I, I kind of, I kind of look at the, the fan base, the super fans of, uh, of Indie Acts especially as sort of like a universal basic income for creators, right? So that, you know, you can always fall back on that um, and, and, and sort of live off of that. And I've, I've talked to a lot of indie artists from uh, Amanda Palmer to Delta Ray um, who, who really, you know, kind of operate on that philosophy that, you know, sort of without their super fans, um, you know, that there's a... Uh, there's there's not much of a safety net but because they they have that direct relationship with their audience you know they can they can really um you know kind of get get through this tough time you know when, when going out on the road isn't really an option and, and that's something i've been writing a lot about lately what about your view zach of the following someone whose opinion i value greatly said to me the problem is and mind you this was last year when it was for all intents and purposes still no real live shows, everyone's online. And this person said to me, the problem is that everybody, meaning all these indie performers, are all going online and they're doing Facebook Live or they're doing Instagram Live or they're doing et cetera, et cetera, similar platforms. And the point being made was they're all saying, hey, come watch me Tuesday night and make sure you Venmo me or PayPal me. And this person was saying, it gets expensive to be the viewer to go online at seven o'clock and watch someone for an hour and tip them $5. And then at eight o'clock, go watch someone else for an hour and tip them X amount. And then at nine o'clock, go watch someone else. And that's just on Tuesday. Then on Wednesday, these folks want you to do it. And then on Thursday, but you know, I, I think there's also a catch 22 there because I think those indie artists would say to that person, well, if the alternative is I sit home and do nothing, I have to make some money somehow. So I'm just curious to get your view on all of that and, and this overcrowding online, as I called it, that started to trend. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely, uh, you know, a ton of options if you want to sit at home and, and you know, watch, um, watch some live streams. But, you know, I, I think that uh, the key here is, how, how do you as a creator differentiate yourself and your stuff? You can't just go up and, and play sort of a static set um, that's, you know, the same as essentially, you know, a recording of one of your concerts, right? Mm. Um, I think for, you know, yeah, we're a lot of us kind of increasingly stuck inside, but, you know, what you know what are, what are the things that you can do remotely that you couldn't do live, right? I mean, there are things like, I mean, it depends on the platform, but, um, you know, if you're, if you're live streaming, you know, you could, you could take requests. I mean, so, so that when the band, um, you know, finishes the, the set and, and they're doing the encore and somebody says play Freebird, you know, you can actually hear them and you can actually play Freebird. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the ability to interact directly with a band like that, you know, even if it's you know only a couple hundred people, it's it's not something you could so easily do in person. Whereas you have a couple hundred people for your live stream, you you can you can kind of see that in the comments, and and you can actually you know have that kind of interactivity. I mean, you could you know you could have a whole uh, set where you where you just take requests, you know, in a way that you really couldn't if you're playing at like the two three hundred cap venue. So um, you know, I think that it's incumbent upon acts to figure out ways of doing things that people would want to do whether they were stuck inside or not that's what's going to really keep people coming back um you know and 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 tipping the five or ten bucks on top of whatever the the, live stream ticket costs yeah i like that and the creativity is at the center of it all and this idea of collaborating which again like you just said you can't do that locally in person but if you're sitting in nashville and you have a colleague that's way out in san diego you can say let's jump on an Instagram live together and now I'm getting exposed to your fans and you're getting exposed to my fans which we couldn't have done in non-COVID times unless one of us flew all the way across the country so I I love that perspective because you're right someone's going to say well I'm sorry how is this any different than if I did go and see you in person 
exactly. And, you know, I think you see this a lot with social media influencers, you know, they, they get on each other's uh, platforms and, you know, and then they bring this cross pollination of audiences. So, you know, if you had, let's say to use my prior example of indie musicians, if you had Amanda Palmer, you know, and Delta Ray talking to each other on Instagram live, um, don't even have to be playing anything, but I think a lot of their fan bases would tune in, you know, and, and kind of, uh, and kind of, you know, do some great cross pollination there in that way too. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, folks, Zach, it should come as no surprise, has a lot of fascinating insights like what you just heard. And I'm looking forward to really rolling up my sleeves to catch up with him since his first appearance on NHTE. One thing that has changed for me since I interviewed him in 2020 is that I am now recording through a great piece of gear from a company called Centrance, like the word entrance with a C at the beginning. I posted a picture on the at now hear this entertainment Instagram account on January 7, showing me at my recording rig holding the unit that I'm talking about. It's both an audio interface and a handheld portable recorder. When you go look up that picture, you'll be surprised how compact it is, yet the tremendous quality sound that it provides. If you're a podcaster, you really want to look at this as your solution for recording. And if you do music, then you want to invest in the model just like it. That's called the mixer face. Either way, you're getting professional quality preamps and an interface for when you want to stream from your tablet or phone. I have been mentioning over some of the last maybe half dozen episodes of this show some of the notable names in music who are using the mixer face if you want to deliver the best sound for your recording projects and streaming make this investment with the piece that comes with knowing that you won't have to buy another one for my audience there is a deal when you purchase directly from Centrance on my show website nhte.net click or tap on the mixer face ad in the right hand column on desktop or scroll way down to find it on mobile and then order and get both free U.S. shipping plus when you put in the code Bruce a free watertight accessory case to carry it in. Zach, when you were on this show two years ago, you were the senior editor of media and entertainment at Forbes. As someone who worked in pro sports and the Olympic movement, I get it when it comes to leaving a job and everyone asking, oh my gosh, how could you leave there? But as the host of this show, I've still got to ask you anyway to give us some insight into your decision to leave Forbes. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, by the time that I decided to leave, I like to say my my career at Forbes was old enough to drive, you know, or, <laughs> or at least have a learner's permit. Um, and I'm not that old. So, you know, I, I thought that it was a good time to uh to give it a go, I had a, this great offer on the table to go over to a rival business publication. And, um, you know, I, I, so I said my goodbyes, I signed the offer sheet and, and, uh, I took a few weeks off to, you know, relax and read some historical fiction and, you know, walk around in the snow. This was last winter. And, um, and then a couple of days before I started, I got this this like 50 page document dropped on me, which was basically a massive intellectual property grab. And, uh, and I said, you know, I, this was not sort of mentioned to me previously. Um, and you know, I can't really be giving away all my rights. And, uh, I thought that for sure they'd, you know, kind of come to the table and work it out. And, you know, I brought my literary agent involved and, um, and no dice. They they basically wouldn't budge. So, you know, as somebody who writes books in addition to articles and, and features and so forth, uh, you know, who's had things optioned for film and TV and what have you, um, you know, I, I couldn't really sort of give that up, you know, I guess from a financial standpoint, but also from a creative standpoint, you know, you want to be involved in, in what happens to your work. Yeah. And, um, and certainly as somebody who, who writes about all these acts who go out there, um, you know, who, who manage to, to keep control of their own rights um, from Jay-Z to Bruce Springsteen. I mean, you know, those are the, the two top earning acts of 2021, right? And that's all because they hung on to their rights. So mm. they, they, you know, were able to create new, you know, to create new stuff that they owned, you know. Um, you know, it, it felt kind of hypocritical to me, the idea that I would be just kind of like, you know, selling everything away, uh, for, for a paycheck. So, um, so I walked away, uh, and, um, you know, I, I decided to go independent and okay. I was greatly aided in that endeavor when Substack uh, came along and, and basically, you know, made me a, a great offer to come over to their platform 
So you mentioned in there um, about your career at Forbes being old enough for a learner's permit or something like that. So do I stand corrected? I introduced you as having spent 10 years as a Forbes senior editor. So was it that I was a senior editor at Forbes for 10 years, but I had been there even longer than that? Is that why you said your Forbes career was old enough for a learner's permit? Yeah, that's right. I uh, I was senior editor for the better part of a decade, and you know I, I think uh, I started out as a summer intern in 2005. Oh wow! I did two summers. I started full time in 2007, and then okay. um, yeah, I, I, yeah. So uh, you know, it's it's been. Uh, it's been quite a ride and you know but definitely ready to try something new okay well before we dig into all that you've been doing since you left forbes and, and mind you it hasn't been that long but you've done a lot since we're only two and a half weeks away from the super bowl i'd love to hear your thoughts on the halftime entertainment that was chosen for this year's game in los angeles meaning dr dre snoop dogg eminem mary j blige and kendrick lamar yeah, I think it's a fantastic lineup. I mean, it's like the Mount Rushmore of hip hop. Um, and I think that it's really important because, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the years about how, you know, sort of the, the sound of the NFL. I mean, it, it, what do the players listen to? What's it like in the locker room? You know, mm. um, that's, that's hip hop uh, for the most part. But the halftime acts have not really reflected that. It's a lot of old rockers and maybe some younger pop singers, but interesting. You know, we really haven't seen, you know, that, that kind of um you know, that kind of representation on the, the halftime stage. And I think particularly with the halftime show being in uh you know, at a Super Bowl that's in LA, uh and all that rich history of, you know, kind of LA hip hop, you know, I think that was a great time to sort of pick uh, to pick this group, and and of course, you know, you got the legends of of LA hip hop, and you know, Dr. Dre, uh, Kendrick, and Snoop. You know, the sort of I, I guess you know, Ice Cube might have something to say about it, but I, I, I would still say those guys are kind of like the holy trinity uh, at this point of, of West Coast uh, uh, rappers who are still alive anyway. Um, so you know, I, I think it's a great lineup. Um, you know, I think frankly just about any one of those acts could hold the show by themselves. So mm. to have everybody up there, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's, it's really a super group. And, um, you know, I, I think it's going to be a, a great show. Well, I had asked that question because I was genuinely interested in hearing your thoughts on it, but also because I feel like it's a good example of what folks can expect to read when they sign up to get your emails. So having told us about your decision to leave Forbes, share with the audience what Substack is. So Substack is basically uh, a cross between MailChimp and Medium. Um, on my end, I, I write my stories, I put them into the platform, and I hit the button, and it simultaneously goes out to my email list, uh, and it goes live online. And you can sign up for free at zogblog.com. That's the name of my newsletter, the Zogblog. It's about the business of music. It comes out once a week. And then on top of that, um, I do a serialized installment of my new book every week. And the book is called We Are All Musicians Now. And, um, you know, everything I do kind of comes back to the same, you know, set of, um, of ideas of, you know, sort of where are we going in the business of music and, you know, how, how does reading about that kind of, you know, how can that be helpful to anybody, whether they're in the business of music or they're another type of creator or, you know, they're in some different profession altogether. Uh, you know, I always find that the, the lessons uh, that come out of music are, are, you know, applicable pretty much, you know, uh, around, uh, around the globe, around all kinds of different industries. One example of some of the great content that you sent out was an email I got from you that contained Music's Big Losers of 2021. For the audience, this is just an appetizer of what's in store when you get on the list to receive this content from Zach. So from that one email, Zach, I've just picked out two. Share with the audience why Eric Clapton and Kiss were both on your list of Music's Big Losers of 2021. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's the biggest issue of um, of the year and, and perhaps of our generation is this pandemic, right? Uh, are you going to be responsible and, and you know, be part of the solution to, to get through to the other end of this thing? Or are you going to make it worse? Are you going to put people in danger? Are you going to spread misinformation? And, um, you know, I, I think that uh, when you look at what happened with KISS, 
um, they, you know, there were people on the tour who, who kind of anonymously reported that, that the band wasn't following the protocols. The band was ravaged uh, by the virus. And in fact, they, they actually lost a beloved guitar tech to it. Um, and, you know, I, I think that, yeah, sure, KISS is still going to have its fans no matter what, but um, they've already been seeing some, you know, uh, softness commercially, and they were set to do a, a Las Vegas residency this fall um, that that was canceled due to the lack of demand for ticket sales. So mm. is that because they weren't, you know, the most responsible when it, ter- it comes to COVID protocols or, you know, is it just mm. because there aren't, aren't that many people interested anyway? W- you know, we'll never know, but, you know, I, I think, I think that this stuff can kind of bleed into the commercial side of things too. And I think we're, we're going to see that with Eric Clapton and, you know, yeah, he's always going to be able to tour. Yeah. People are going to listen to his music. But, you know, when you look at some of these huge catalog deals that are happening uh, with aging rockers selling their, their publishing and recorded music rights for, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, you know, Eric Clapton is somebody who, who could be in, it, in that conversation. But, um, you know, if you're a, if you're a, a big um, in financial institution that's looking to take on, you know, that kind of a, uh, uh, a financial commitment, um, you know, that's something that you're going to have to factor into your, you know, into your calculus. And, and you know, it, it might be that there's a danger that, that people will boycott his music uh, to some extent or that, you know, simply that the PR hit that a, that a large uh, financial institution would take from, you know, writing that kind of a check to somebody who's been spreading misinformation, um, you know, that can cost lives really um, in the pandemic age. You know, um, that's something that if he if he really wanted to sell his copyrights, you know, could cost him millions of dollars off of what he would have been able to sell it to before. Now, I'm not saying that nobody would buy his copyrights, you know, because of all this, but uh, I'm just thinking, you know, thinking that it would make some of these big buyers think twice or, you know, give him a lower multiple, which could have a, a significant impact on his bottom line. Mm. Wow. Wow. Well, on a related note, you had also sent out a piece on music's big winners of 2021. You said that hip-hop continued to thrive, and you also included Olivia Rodrigo on that list. That's right. Olivia Rodrigo, um, you know, when you look at what she's done, it's really over the past year, this one year, uh, calendar year 2021, she went from being, you know, sort of a a Disney singer actor type of type of person um who you know who nobody let's say in in mainstream adult pop culture had really heard of to to being you know the artist of 2021 right i mean driver's license came out in january 2020 it's kind of hard to believe that but it was it was a year ago that that first song came out um that first big single came out for her uh we all heard it you know (laughs) over that pandemic winter um on the radio repeatedly and and you know but she's not a one-hit wonder she followed it up with good for you which in my opinion is even better song she had a couple other great big singles and um and so now she gets to skip from you know that part of an artist's phase that she might have been at, you know, last year she'd toured, you know, where she's maybe playing, um, you know, small venues, few hundred, uh, you know, a few hundred cap type venues to, you know, to, she's, she's going straight to like Radio City. She's going straight to, you know, 8,000 um, see amphitheaters, that kind of mm-hmm. thing, when she finally hits the road in 2022. So, um, you know, it, it was a year where she went from, you know, from really from zero to 60, and then, and then she gets, to, when she gets back, uh, we all get back to going to concerts, she's going to be right there, uh, you know, at 60, and, uh, you know, probably accelerating, uh, depending on, you know, how everything goes. Uh, in 2022. And so what about hip-hop? Why is that the one genre that you singled out as part of music's big winners of 2021? Yeah, I think that hip-hop is the genre that is best positioned to weather the the pandemic. Um, And I'm talking about in terms of, you know, artists, bank accounts, right? Um, Hip-hop has never made the most, you know, hip-hop acts have never made the most of their money on touring um it's it's been a lot of recorded music but it's Mm -hmm. also been a lot of outside business ventures and um you know whether it's 
Kanye West with Yeezy or Jay-Z selling his champagne company or Drake being sort of the king of streaming, um, you know, these are all acts that, that aren't really touring during the pandemic and, and also don't need to be because they have, you know, all these other ways of making money. And, um, you know, I think for hip hop, a lot of that was entrepreneurship by necessity. Uh, some of the institutionalized racism in the music business, some of the factors that, you know, prevented um, hip hop tours from kind of, you know, getting out there on the same, you know, uh, kind of scale as, as rock and pop tours, um, you know, kind of uh, led the, the great artists of hip hop to, to find other solutions, think outside the box of ways that they could, you know, capitalize on their on their fame and their talent. And um, you know, I think as a result, they're they're the best position to make it through the pandemic. Great stuff, great stuff, and there's a lot more to come still. But first, I am joined today on the Now Hear This Entertainment guest line from New York by Zach Greenberg, who writes for Substack on the intersection of music, media, and money. Visit his official website at zogreenberg.com, or as they would say in Canada, zogreenberg.com. I will put a link to it on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. Once you land on his website, click or tap into the Zog blog heading, where you will see a link to sign up for his free emails that you've been hearing us talk about. In addition, paid subscribers will also get the serialized chapters of a brand new book called We Are All Musicians Now. He has four other books that are available in physical form. Click into the book section of his website for more information, as well as links to order those. And do go back and listen to my first interview with Zach from two years ago on episode 325. I will put a link to it on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. And by the way, Zach is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There are links for all those at the bottom of zogreenberg.com so that you can follow him on social media. Zach can tell you the value of being a good interviewee, both from his perspective as a journalist and as someone who promotes his books and now what he's doing for Substack. Position yourself to be a great guest by taking my online class at interviewtipscourse.com. I walk you through close to 30 tips for how to maximize the opportunities you get as a guest on podcasts, radio, TV, and the like. Plus, in another module, I show you 15 sources that you can utilize for finding more interview opportunities. This is in a go-at-your-own-pace, on-demand format, so you don't have to worry about a schedule conflict or availability. This course can help a wide range of professionals, music, entrepreneurs, authors, small business owners, people who do coaching. If you're looking to be interviewed to get more for your business, your product, or your service, go to interviewtipscourse.com and take my class first so that you can position yourself to see more results from being a great guest. Zach, in there, I mentioned your newest book, We Are All Musicians. Share with the audience what exactly that means, We Are All Musicians. Yeah, so basically, in my view, um, we are all musicians now because when you look at the past few decades of major disruptive technological changes, they've all hit music before they hit other industries. So whether that's the shift from physical to digital, uh, the decimation of record stores, you know, being among the first sort of canaries in the coal mine, um, or it's, you know, the shift from um, sort of digital ownership online in the form of MP3s to streaming, uh, you know, coming in music way before it hit the film industry, uh, even things like NFTs. I mean, I think that the Wu-Tang Clan secret album, which came out um, about seven years ago, you know, that was kind of like the first NFT, but nobody called it that. So my contention is that if you follow the musicians, you can basically tell the future, whatever industry you're in. And that's kind of what the book is about. Well, we all remember the band Hanson. They came out to the music scene through their song Mbop. That song has over a quarter of a billion, with a B as in Bruce, over a quarter of a billion streams on Spotify, but it came out back in 1997. And yet in We Are All Musicians, you write that Hanson helped invent social media? Yeah, it's uh, obviously way before, uh, you know, Facebook or anything like that. I mean, I think Mark Zuckerberg was probably in high school uh, when Bob came out. But, 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's uh, it's a fascinating story. And, and I, I interviewed them for my Substack, and, you know, it kind of got, got a great bit of uh, detail on, on, you know, what they did. But in those days, um, you know, the record labels didn't really care about owning artists' website rights and, th- and newsletters and mailing lists and things like that. And so Hanson, you know, they they were teenagers and younger, um, and uh, they decided that they were just going to go ahead and, and do the thing. You know, they were already going online and, you know, AOL or whatever it was at the time. <laughs> and, uh, and they said, well, you know, why don't we just create a place where our fans can, you know, can interact with us. And they created Hanson.net. And, you know, you could even go and, and get your own Hanson.net email address if you were in the fan club. Wow. And, uh, and so they really, over, over the years, they've built it into this behemoth, um, uh, you know, just scores and scores of subscribers paying 40 bucks a year. And, mm. uh, you know, and, and really, you know, it is like social media. I mean, you, and it's been like that since before Facebook was a thing. I mean, you, you go on and you can have your profile. You can interact with other people on there and um you know it's coalesced around it let's say around a shared interest uh hansen um and they've really kind of turned it into this you know this this huge business that sustained them um and and kind of allowed them you know to not only have uh, a steady revenue stream from the fan club itself but you know to, to be in touch with their fans to know hey we have you know x thousand fans in you know, wherever in um, Brazil or Israel or South Africa, and um, you know, to actually be able to kind of like tailor their their routing for their tours, you know, based on that, as opposed to just sort of wildly guessing and then you know uh, not booking the the right type of venue or going someplace where they don't have fans or you know um, uh, accidentally underplaying a market where they have a ton of fans. So. You know, they go on the road and, and they go to Brazil and Australia and, and you know, they'll sell out, I think, seven, eight thousand seat venues, um, you know, which is way more than they than they usually do in the US. And, you know, here they still can sell out, you know, a few thousand seats. Um, they played the Beacon in New York and they sold that out, I think, two nights in a row. So, uh, you know, it, it's really enabled them to have a, a ton of data to, to be able to kind of like plan their careers around. Um, but you know, yeah, when you look back and it was, it was a very early form of, of social media for sure. Wow. That's fascinating. And it does go to show you that, you know, being an early adopter, so to speak, you know, being kind of a forward thinker and having this vision and, and if nothing else, just really kind of, I'm going to say doing something and not make excuses for it. I mean, that's kind of a, a dumbed down version, but you know, if you have something as an idea that you think maybe might possibly work, one of those things where you're having and hawing, try it out, see how it goes. And in that case, they just decided, okay, let's try this out and see how it goes. And lo and behold, look what it turned into. I mean, at one point in there, Zach, you were talking about, you know, open pay X amount a year and you get these kind of privileges. I mean, to me, that sounds like what we know as Patreon. I mean, for now here's this entertainment you can pay five bucks a month to get bonus content to go back to 2020 when when zach greenberg and i did record some extra conversation for the now here this entertainment patreon and here was hansen doing something that wasn't patreon but it might as well have been back in the late 90s when it was hey we just want to give our fans special treatment we want to have this online community we want to have a place to offer special things uh so so that's fascinating because you know i think people just kind of associate social media with what we've come to know it as over the last 15 years and granted you can make an argument for myspace i guess uh, but back then there really wasn't such a thing and they kind of said well what if we just did this and now here we sit in 2022 able to say yeah in a roundabout way that was basically social media it basically was and you know talk about uh, pandemic proof but an online fan club is a really great thing to have when you can't get out there and tour and you know so who knew i mean a quarter of a century ago but they were really setting themselves up to be uh, in, a, in a great place when when covid 19 came around well let's back up to something that you had mentioned a few minutes ago one of the hot topics these days is nfts correct me if i'm wrong i believe this is in we are all musicians you had mentioned before that you contend that Wu-Tang Clan actually created an NFT years before anybody really knew what that was. 
That's right. In 2014, I was actually the one who broke the news of the existence of this secret album for Forbes. And, uh, you know, it, it was this crazy premise that they were going to have a one-of-one one album, uh, only one copy, and they were going to sell it to the highest bidder. And, you know, there's going to be all this language um, legally in there that, that said that it couldn't be you know, reproduced or or, uh, or distributed in sort of a traditional manner, it could only be one of one. And the goal was to kind of um, make it almost like, I think Riza told me he wanted it to be like the, the scepter of an Egyptian king, you know, the completely <laughs> unique object, uh, like like sculpture, or, you know, the fine arts, and, and really wanted to bring music back to that sort of um, status. And, you know, I, I think, it certainly started that conversation. Uh, a lot of people on, on, you know, different sides of the argument, but the, the album has had this crazy history. I mean, it, it went, um, it ended up being sold to Martin Shkreli, the, the sort of uh, super villain uh, pharma bro who then went to jail and forfeited the album. Mm. The government took control of it. Then recently uh, somebody bought it at auction from the government for about what Shkreli paid for. I think it was $2 million. Then that person flipped it for four million dollars to uh, to a, a DAO, a decentralized autonomous organization, and um, you know, and now now they're kind of determining what they want to do with it. But um, w when you look at what it is, it's it is something that is the album is you know potentially infinitely replicable as a piece of digital media, and yet there's only this one copy, right? There's this one of one. It's it's sort of a certificate of authenticity, and I think. That's at, at, at its core what an NFT is. You know, an NFT is something, um, you know, like let's say an NFT, uh, a, a piece of art that's an NFT. You know, that's theoretically infinitely replicable. You could just take a screenshot or something. Um, but, the, but the NFT architecture, you know, kind of proves that, that it's a unique thing or that it's a limited edition thing. And, um, you know, that, that's sort of what Wu-Tang did we just didn't really have the vocabulary for it at the time so you know i, I talked to people in the nft space who think that if the wu-tang album were ever put up at auction it's something that could you know as an nft fetch 10 times you know 20 times more than it, wow. it went for originally for that, that two million dollar fee wow. uh looking at some of the biggest nft drops out there the, I think the biggest one on record was a painting by an artist named Beeple, and he it went for $69 million. Um, you know, I don't know that somebody would pay $69 million for the album, but, you know, who knows? I mean, all it takes is one buyer with, uh, you know, a ton of, sitting on a ton of Bitcoin or something, or Ethereum, and, um, you know, and it could be, uh, uh, like, that kind of uh, stratosphere. So... Um, yeah, I think that that was a, a truly revolutionary move that, that uh, the Wu-Tang Clan did, and I think that history is going to look back on that as, as a, like a really critical watershed type of moment. And for the audience, it's okay if you don't know what NFT is, if you're not into blockchain, if you're not into cryptocurrency, that whole arena. NFT stands for non-fungible tokens. I would suggest that you pop that into your preferred search engine of choice, educate yourself on what NFTs are. You're certainly getting a flavor for it from Zach here and, and a great story there, Zach, about Wu-Tang Clan. I do want to move on, but while still talking about We Are All Musicians, it opens with you writing about Paul McCartney's biggest regret. Do you care to tip your hand as to what readers can expect to see there? Yeah, I, I interviewed Paul McCartney a few years ago, uh, back when I was at Forbes, for, for our greatest business minds of the 20th century or the past 100 years, I think it's the past 100 years, for the Forbes centennial issue. And, um, and Paul said, you know, ownership was the thing that, that uh, you know, that, that in terms of lessons that he wished he had learned about earlier. Mm. And he talked about you know, giving up um, the control of, of his copyrights, you know, the, the Beatles catalog. Um, and he told the story of, you know, they were kids and, you know, you'd do anything to get that record deal to to uh, to get a little bit of cash for your publishing mm. and, and so forth. And so they lost control of, uh, of their copyrights. And then in the 80s, Paul was working with Michael Jackson on uh, on a song and and you know 
Michael kind of asked his advice about being a young artist and, you know, avoiding whatever pitfalls. And, and Paul said, you know, own copyrights, own publishing. Wow. And, and Michael said, he said, oh, I'm going to get yours. And Paul kind of laughed and he, he thought Michael was joking, but Michael was deadly serious, ended up buying the Beatles catalog mm. uh, with some other stuff for $47.5 million in 1985. Wow. And then that became the Sony ATV publishing catalog that um, I think Michael Jackson's estate got something like $750 million for his half mm. uh, a, few, a few years back, and it's probably worth even more now. So it's uh, it goes to show the value of intellectual property mm. and the importance of hanging on to it. And folks, these are fascinating insights from Zach, are they not? And if you're going to be disappointed in a little bit when we wrap up and say, I wish they would have talked longer, my answer to that is, A, go back and listen to our first interview, and B, sign up for his email because instead of just getting this one episode of Now Hear This Entertainment, you can continue to get these type of insights from Zach on a recurring basis in your inbox and the type of value that he's delivering here on one episode of this podcast, you're going to be getting on a recurring basis from him. Zach, I recently read that vinyl outsold CDs in 2021. Mind you, this is not to say that streaming is going away and we will all return to physical units, but what are you seeing from consumer trends as it relates to what music fans will spend money on when it comes to buying music? Because certainly the indie world would love to know if they should start taking a serious look at producing physical units. For sure, yeah. And and it's kind of a, a mind-bending number. Uh, vinyl sales went up from $27.5 million in 2020 to um, – 41.7 million so it's a 51 percent change this uh, year over year mm. versus cds which actually surprisingly went up a little bit uh, from 40.2 to 40.6 million but uh this is the first time you know since nielsen and mrc and so forth started keeping track in the early 90s that uh, vinyl has surpassed cds of course Back in the day, many decades ago, vinyl uh, was doing better than CDs because there there weren't any CDs. Um, and then, you know, in the early years of CDs, I'm sure vinyl was doing better too. But, um, you know, I actually think the most fascinating thing is that CD sales increased. Uh, and and I think that like, they increased at all. I mean, it's only 1%, but, you know, the idea that, yeah. that even a, a 1% increase in CD sales, I mean, that's something that nobody would have predicted a couple of years ago. Um, you know, vinyl's been on this tear for the past you know, 10 plus years, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, I think that, um, you, you know, you're seeing a lot of interest as, as our world becomes increasingly virtual, just kind of with the march of technology, but also the pandemic and we're all stuck inside uh, a lot of the time. You know, I think people are really eager to have physical, tangible things. And I think vinyl is a great example of that. But, you know, you see this also everything from baseball cards to, you know, Pokemon cards, I mean, any kind of collectible, you know, the market has been really hot uh, lately. And you know, I think it, it is it is all part of that same interest in, you know, having tangible stuff in your life in an area where you don't so much. Uh, I also think that vinyl and to a lesser extent CDs, you know, this is merch as much as it is music. Right. And people, you know, people really love whatever band they really love, but um, they want to listen to the music. They also want to have some kind of physical keepsake, and you know, why not have a, a vinyl instead of like a commemorative lanyard? It's it's you know, it's, yeah. a, lot, uh, it's a lot more interesting. So, yeah, yeah I think that I, what I would really love to see is of the of those forty one point seven million vinyl LPs sold in twenty twenty one. What percentage of them ever get opened, right? Mm. Or versus, um, you know, the, the percentage that sit on on the shelf in somebody's bedroom as a memento, as a keepsake, uh, or you know, maybe they open them but they don't even have a, 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 disc, a, a record player. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that that's a you know I, I don't know I'd love to see data on that. Probably hard to find it, but um, I think that would be really really interesting. Well, and if you think, too, about the fact that there's so much electronic access to shows these days, meaning there's no more physical tickets, a lot of people like that souvenir 
of having gone to the show. Yeah. And so you don't have a ticket stub to prove it anymore. So I think what you're saying is exactly that. They say, well, I got to have something to take away from this to have something to remember this show by. And all of a sudden it becomes a CD or it becomes an album because eh, I don't need another lanyard in my life. And it is fascinating at the same time, like you just said, that they're buying something that Let's face it, in 2022, how many people even have a CD player anymore, never mind a turntable? And I think a lot of it, and it's funny to talk about CDs under the umbrella of nostalgia. I can't believe we're to that point where all of a sudden CDs are, oh, remember CDs? But, you know, they don't even make computers with CD drives anymore. So unless you happen to have a CD player in your vehicle, where are you going to play that CD? And maybe it's a case of, I just want to support this artist, or I just want something to remember this show by. And the same thing, as you said, I, I think turntables are probably actually more popular than CD players, just because I think culture has really embraced the concept of nostalgia so much that it is very in vogue to embrace something like vinyl, to embrace something like a turntable. And so here they are all of a sudden buying things that a few years ago, artists were scratching their heads and saying, I wish these folks would do something more than just stream my music. Absolutely. And, you know, I didn't see it in this year-end MRC report, but... Um, you know, you hear kind of anecdotal evidence and occasional numbers on uh, cassette tapes, you know, making it a little bit of a comeback, too. So, yeah, I, I think there's a, a tremendous interest in nostalgia, and, and um, I think we're probably going to keep seeing that kind of interest in physical, um, tangible mementos, you know, as, as our world becomes ever more virtual. And it's running very counter, of course, to talking about NFTs, but I think that's the fascinating aspect here is that there is that balance is there's going to be people who are going to chase after NFTs because of what they are and their uniqueness, but I think also because it's the shiny new thing that everybody wants to be drawn towards right now. And then you are going to get the other part of society that says, no, never mind that digital stuff. I want something I can hold in my hand. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. On the subject, though, Zach, of the original question that vinyl outsold CDs in 2021, you actually wrote about this. Did you not? What was it, I want to say, maybe 10-ish years ago? Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I think it was 2011. I wrote a piece called The Case for Vinyl, Why LPs Will Outlast CDs for Forbes, and everybody thought I was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, I mean, I don't know. It, uh, it, it's pretty wild that, that, um, that, that vinyl is finally surpassing these. Because even back then, I mean, I think uh, the numbers were, you know, it was maybe a couple million units of vinyl, but CD was, CDs were, you know, maybe, I think, around 50 million. I don't know, something like that. Um, but it, it, uh, vinyl has really moved a lot, and I think, I think what's really uh, helping that is, is artists like Taylor Swift really embracing the medium. And when you have somebody with that stature and, you know, that kind of rabid fan base, um, it's going to really move the, the entire medium uh, along in, in, in a pretty substantial way. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Well, I would love to close with some sort of vision from you. I won't use the word prediction as it relates to this year that we've just started obviously the virus is the wild card in all this but i'm thinking about nfts i'm thinking about podcasts i'm thinking about you shifting over to substack i'm thinking about something like tiktok still being pretty hot and yes i'm even thinking about live streams i look at you as someone who is on the front line of seeing what might lie ahead as we go through 2022 from a music media money standpoint so your thoughts yeah, you know, I think we're going to see some more of those big catalog sales. Um, I think we're going to see somebody sell for more than Bruce Springsteen's $550 million. I'll throw that out there. And uh, But I think we're going to see a lot of, you know, sort of centimillion-dollar catalog deals, uh, old-school old rockers and so forth, kind of taking advantage of the moment when, when the multiples are really high. And... Um, you know, I think we're also going to see other genres uh, recognized a little better for you know the value of their catalogs, from hip hop to uh, country. I mean, I think that you know for the for these big investors, one of the things that is interesting to them about the rock catalogs is that you know there's such a, a, a long proven history of, of um, these 
digital assets or these assets making making money and, and now making it digitally. Um, but you know, there there are songs in Tupac Sakura's catalog that have been you know steadily making money for whatever twenty plus years. Mm. Uh, there there you know there there are songs like that in just about every genre. So um, I think that you're going to start to see some of those investors get a little more interested in, in other genres, um, especially, you know, because some of these, the Bruce Springsteen's in the world, you know, there are only so many buyers who can, who can really get into something that big. Well said, well said. And folks, when that ends up happening, remember that you heard it first. I <laughs> know you're at this entertainment from Zach Greenberg, Zach, wonderful to have you back on the show. Thank you so much. And, Really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate you coming back to now hear this entertainment. Oh, likewise. Great to be here. And with that, I will wrap up another new episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. My sincere thanks to Zach Greenberg for coming back on the show. As you have heard during this conversation, he now writes for Substack on the intersection of music, media, and money. Do visit his official website at zogreenberg.com. As I mentioned before, I will put a link to it on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. Once you land on his website, click or tap into the Zog blog heading where you'll see a link to sign up for his free emails that you've been hearing us talk about. In addition, paid subscribers will also get the serialized chapters of his brand new book called We Are All Musicians Now. He has four other books that are available in physical form. Click into the books section of his website for more information as well as links to order those. And do go back and listen to my first interview with Zach from two years ago on episode 325 I will put a link to it on the show page for this episode at nhte.net. And by the way, Zach is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. There are links for all those at the bottom of zogreenberg.com so that you can follow him on social media. One more reminder before I wrap up, my online class at interviewtipscourse.com is on demand in a go-at-your-own-pace format so you can do it when it's most convenient for you rather than worrying about a specific date and time fitting into your schedule. Don't just keep doing interviews and coming away frustrated that nothing came from them. Learn from me and all that I've been doing with interviews for years and years now, not only hosting this show, but booking Now Hear This clients into interviews, plus the work that I did with athletes, coaches, and executives during my time in the Olympic movement and the National Hockey League. Go to interviewtipscourse.com now to get started. That will do it for episode 416. Thank you so, so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And I will talk to you again next week on another episode of Now Hear This Entertainment. 